Welcome to your headquarters for knowledge and helpful advice on a variety of topics, all from trusted experts in their fields. It's time for River City Podcast. Elizabeth McMaster is the founder and owner of the law offices of Elizabeth McMaster, PLC. After graduating from the Catholic University Columbus School of Law in Washington, D.C. in 2006 and passing the Virginia State Bar, Elizabeth opened her practice in historic Fredericksburg, Virginia in February 2007. Elizabeth specializes in elder law, estate planning, guardianship, probate, special needs planning, and mental health law. Elizabeth grew up on a 106-acre farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which spurred her love of history, especially the U.S. Civil War, which led her to attend college in Virginia. Although born in Pennsylvania, Elizabeth is now a Virginian at heart. Elizabeth is a member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and is a board member for the Virginia Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Elizabeth is also a member of the Virginia Beach Bar Association, the Virginia State Bar, and Suffolk Business Women's Group. Elizabeth has been on the board of the Alzheimer's Association, which is near and dear to her heart as she has lost a grandmother grandfather, uncle, and great-uncle, as well as countless clients to Alzheimer's disease. Elizabeth moved to North Suffolk, Virginia in December 2020. She lives with her husband, John, his adult son, three French bulldogs, and a sweet black cat. When not assisting her clients, Elizabeth loves to listen to true crime podcasts, go to the beach, and hang out with her Frenchies. Elizabeth, welcome back to River City Podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. So I want to help our listeners learn more today about planning for your estate when you have a special needs child. This is definitely a bit more complicated, and I think it would really help our listeners to just be aware of some of the nuances if this does fit your situation. And so first things first, can you explain a little bit about whether or not special needs children can even inherit money and how that works? Well, there is still a misconception out there that if you have a child or it could be a family member, many grandparents would like to leave something to a grandchild who may have autism or Down syndrome, for example, and they're still under the impression that I can't leave my special needs family member any inheritance because that could interrupt them from receiving any type of government entitlement. That is no longer true because there are things now in the federal statutes and in, of course, Virginia follows as well, where there are vehicles where you can leave money to adult beneficiaries that may suffer from a disability. There are the first things that came about what are called special needs trusts, and there are several types of those. Now, in 2014, I believe it was, there is a new vehicle called an ABLE account, A-B-L-E, and that is a bank account. There are some restrictions on that, and they are a little different from the special needs trust, and we can go through what the differences are and the pros and cons. Those are the two main vehicles, our special needs trust or an ABLE account, in order to leave money to a beneficiary who has been deemed by the Social Security Administration to suffer from a disability. For layman's terms, if there is a grandmother who wants to leave all five of her grandchildren a part of her estate, there is a special step that she absolutely needs to do with the special needs grandchild, which is to establish either the ABLE account or the special needs trust. Is that correct? That's correct. 
and we'll tackle the special needs trust first. So the special needs trust, there are three types. The first type we will talk about is a third-party special needs trust. And in the situation with grandma, who has a grandchild who may suffer from a disability, grandma would want to put money into this type of trust because it's her money and she wants it to go to her five grandchildren equally, which is fine. And if she does a will or a trust, she can put a provision in either the will or the trust that her disabled grandchild will just say, Johnny, he'll be able to get one fifth of her whatever amount she wants to give to the grandchildren, but his goes into that third party special needs trust. And the importance of having the third party is that she can designate any funds that remain in that trust upon Johnny's death, which leads us to the next. Yeah, what is the next? <laughs> yeah, this is important because there is a self-settled special needs trust as well. Now, the self-settled special needs trust can be set up by a parent or guardian or an individual under the age of 65 who suffers from a disability. And these types of trusts, for example, let's say Johnny is disabled, but he's disabled because when he was born, there was some type of medical malpractice that caused him to suffer from this disability that he now has. So he, through a lawsuit, wins a million dollars because of the negligence from the medical staff. So that is actually his money. He would set up the special needs trust, the self-settled. He would or if he couldn't do it himself, if his parent was his guardian, could set up that type of special needs trust. However, the funds remaining in that trust upon Johnny's death would go back to the Commonwealth of Virginia because that money is going to go to pay for all, if he's, he probably has Medicaid, that sort of thing. So it's going to go back to cover those expenses that he had throughout his life. So that is one of the biggest difference between a self-settled and a third party because the self-settled is actually Johnny's money and he got that through that malpractice and whatever is left would go to the Commonwealth of Virginia. Really important distinction for people to know. Very important. And I've seen trusts drawn up by attorneys who don't know what they're doing and they set it up. It's really a third party, but they designate the uh, residuary beneficiary to be the Commonwealth. And if it's a third party special needs trust, you don't, you do not want to do that. You want to have it set up where it could go to Johnny's siblings or, you know, if Johnny had a child, it could go to Johnny's child, it could go to whomever. I've had people have the residuary go to a group home. Well, this group home has taken such good care of Johnny that we want to make sure that they get something upon his death, or it could be a charity that assists with the disease that Johnny suffers from. So it could really be anything. So we have grandma who sets up that third-party special needs trust for Johnny. Well, let's say we have grandpa, which is her ex-husband, and they don't talk and they hate each other. Imagine that. Let's say grandpa, but he loves Johnny. He can go ahead and he can set up another third-party trust for little Johnny as well. He doesn't have to piggyback on his ex-wife doing it that way. So there's no limit to how many special needs trusts could be out there, which is different than the ABLE account, which we'll tackle when we're done with the special needs trust. So that's the self-settled versus the third party. And then we have what's called a pool trust. A pool trust can either be a self-settled 
or a third-party special needs trust, but it's pooled. And that means a management company handles it. And we have two in Virginia. We have Commonwealth Community Trust in Richmond and the Ark of Northern Virginia up in uh, Fairfax that handle these type of trusts. So the pool trust just means that they have sub-trusts under them where they will actually administer the trust and they will handle all the nuances of the trust in the event that a family member doesn't have anybody to do it or they just don't want their family member to be burdened by administering the trust. So that's a pool trust and it could be they do it for self-settled and they do it for third-party special needs trusts. And whatever money, let's say it's $100,000, they will take Johnny's $100,000 and put it in a sub-account and they will invest it. And of course, they invest it very conservatively. And anytime Johnny needs money out of that trust, then they will write a check and they'll send it and they handle everything. Of course, they charge a fee for doing that, but it's great to have a pool trust if in the event you don't have anybody who can minister the trust in the family or a close friend. That covers these special needs trusts. And there's only uh, two in the area? Yes, there are two. And they have certain regulations and they are fiduciaries and as such, they are regulated and um, audited frequently. That's great because I would imagine that in this situation, it'd be pretty easy to be taken advantage of. So Yes. And they're, they basically, they look at what the rules of the trust are. And if Johnny's guardian calls and says, you know, Johnny needs a new TV for his room at his group home, then they will go ahead and they'll write a check or they'll send a card or they'll do whatever to make sure that Johnny gets that. So if you think of a big pool and you throw a bunch of stuff in and you throw a bunch of money in the pool, that's how it is. And that's how they invest. And they make those subtrusts under whatever be Johnny Doe, they would set up his subtrust. That makes perfect sense. Okay, talk to us about ABLE accounts. Okay, so the ABLE account is very attractive because it's probably the easiest one to set up. You basically go to the bank and say, I'm going to set up an ABLE account. That's what you do. So ABLE account, however, does have some downfalls. One of them is you can only ever put $100,000 in the ABLE account. There is no maximum for a special needs trust. You could fill up a, let's say, grandma does a special needs trust for Johnny, and she puts $10 million in there. She's absolutely allowed to do that. She could put $20 million in there if she wanted to. So there is no monetary limit to the funds in the special needs trust. But in the ABLE account, $100,000. That's it. The other con is you can only have one. So in the situation where you have grandma doing a special needs trust and her ex-husband wanting to do one, which they're absolutely allowed to do, they could not both set up ABLE accounts for little Johnny. Can't happen. Could they have an ABLE account and a special needs trust? Yes, they could. The other big one on ABLE accounts is guess where the money goes when little Johnny passes away? To the, the government. Of Virginia. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it has that payback. We call it a payback provision. The other thing is the disability must have happened before the beneficiary reached the age of 26. Let's say I had a guardianship one time where the individual was working on a car and the car fell on him while he was working on the car. He was underneath of it and caused brain damage. He was a full adult at the time. And this wasn't the facts of this case, but let's say this individual is 27 years old when it happened. And his mother gets guardianship of him. She's like, I need to set up an ABLE account. Well, she can't because the disability happened when he was 27 years old. So that's another limitation of the ABLE account. It's great 
for some people. If you know, I'm never going to get over $100,000. I've had to do self-settled before ABLE accounts. I've had to set up self-settled trusts. When somebody has applied for SSI, and believe it or not, sometimes it takes a while to receive the benefit, and all of a sudden, the person receives $15,000. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute, we've got a problem here because under the receiving Medicaid, they can't have over $2,000 in assets. What are we going to do? So we automatically would have to set up a self-settled because it was actually their money. A a few things to think of, and I'm not saying don't do an ABLE account. In that case, if that would happen, you could just put that money into an ABLE account. So that is a good advantage as well for the ABLE account. Another thing is that the investment income earned is not taxed as long as it's distributed for the individual's qualified expenses related to the disability. And those expenses would be health, education, housing, transportation, assistive technology, personal support, that sort of thing. So that is another pro advantage for doing the ABLE account. But the special Uh, needs trusts are taxed? Well, if there's income, income earned. So yes, everybody, you know, lawyers always say it depends. So when you look at the situation, whatever the particular situation is for the individual and their family to say, well, in this instance, I think an ABLE account would be a good idea. Or in this instance, if you have family members that want to give money to a disabled beneficiary, then maybe a special needs trust is the better way to go. It depends on the situation how people want to do that. When people hear, you know, anything left is going to go to the Commonwealth of Virginia, they don't like that. That's, yeah, that's nobody the biggest, wants that. Yeah, that's probably the biggest con of all of it is that we they don't want their money to go or the beneficiary's money to go back to the Commonwealth. The best thing to do rather than try and navigate this all yourself is to bring the exact circumstances and all the possible scenarios of what could take place in your situation to someone like you who can then really kind of roadmap the different Mm -hmm. options and what really will be the best for the family. Yes. And the worst thing that you can do, and I hear that, I still hear this, and I had one case that really disturbed me where you can explain things, but then if you've heard something for a very long time, such as I cannot leave my child with special needs, I can't leave them any of my estate, trying to let people know that that's just not true. I had someone one time who had a child who was special needs, an older child, and she wanted to leave her child money. I told her, yes, absolutely. You can do this. This is how we can do it. She just wanted a plain will. I said, well, in the will, we can designate that her share goes into a special needs trust. She was all on board. And then she spoke to a family member who said, oh, don't worry. We'll take care of it for you. You just have a feeling, you know what's going on. And I thought, oh, that money will be gone. So this family member talked her into not doing it. And I sent her several articles that I found about how individuals with disabilities, when their protector passes away or is incapacitated, how other people will take advantage of them and um, steal their money. And they end up in homeless shelters, believe it or not. I sent her an article, was from another state where that was happening quite frequently. And she still insisted on doing it the way she wanted to. So I told her that I would not do her will for her. I was that adamant about, because I just, I had a conversation with the family member who said they were going to take care of things. And it was very plain to me what was going to happen. If there's a plan and it protects that person, why? Why would you want to push to have that unless it was self-serving? 
Well, yeah, exactly. My client, she was elderly, but I think she was being influenced. She didn't have dementia, but she was being influenced by this family member who was telling her, oh, I'll take care of everything. Don't worry about it. And she completely believed it. And I completely did not believe it. I just had a really, really bad feeling. We have to go by our gut sometimes. Do we get the outcome of the story or is it going to be left a mystery? It's a mystery. I never looked back. I'm pretty sure I know what happened. It uh, hopefully she didn't end up in a um, homeless shelter and went to a group home. But part of planning when we're talking about individuals with a disability, and we speak about this in a guardianship episode, is about what do we do? Because if the parents are caring for their disabled child and then adult child, what happens when the parent becomes ill themselves or is incapacitated or dies? And nobody, really, people do not want to think about it. They know they have to, but they don't want to think about what's going to happen to my disabled child when I'm gone. That's a very raw emotion. And it's, you know, some people just want to bury their heads in the sand. And unfortunately, when that happens, other people have to step in and make those decisions. Yeah, nobody wins. So exactly. Let's pull our heads out of the sand and deal with this and take care of the children. Take care of our big boy and girl (laughs) pants on. (laughs) Yes. Elizabeth, let's... We all hate adulting at some time. Oh, it's terrible. It's the worst. Let's talk about families that have multiple children. Let's say I was in a position where I had four kids. One of them was disabled. The oldest was not and is very responsible. I think my assumption would be to allocate the responsibility, if anything happened to me, to the oldest to take care of their siblings, including their disabled sibling. It generally is a good idea. And we see this a lot in the guardianship context when I have, you know, mom and dad becoming the guardian of a disabled child who turns 18. They generally know if they have a child, an other child, they know who they want to take over. And they have groomed <laughs> that sibling to say, you know, when we're gone or we can't do it anymore, Johnny's your responsibility. And early, no one's going to balk at that. But they know which child it's going to be that's going to step up and take care of Johnny when that time comes. And they will, in most circumstances, have that set up. They'll have him as a standby guardian or even a co-guardian on the guardianship. So they don't want any lag time in between something happening to them and the sibling uh, stepping in and helping take care of Johnny. If they're really responsible at the same time, they're going to set up their estate plan. They're going to set up a special needs trust and they're going to either appoint, let's say, Tiffany, the responsible adult child to be the trustee for Johnny. Or they could say, you know what? Tiffany's going to have her own things to do. We don't want Tiffany to worry about it. We're going to get the route of the pool trust. They could go either way with that. If the siblings aren't necessarily at an age where they're earning a good income and they need to provide for this sibling as well as maybe themselves, are there any any things that can be set up where they can be covered as far as household expenses out of these trusts or ABLE accounts? Yeah, if the person they're assisting lives with them, absolutely. They can use those funds for that person. And depending on what they're receiving with the special needs trust, if they're paying any kind of housing or food, then that would decrease how much SSI they're receiving. But if they have the money in the special needs trust, they would be entitled to have that. And if they're the trustee of a special needs trust, they can take administrative fee for doing that as well. Just like any other trustee, if it's a revocable living trust, can take a fee for administering the trust. 
Wow. I had no idea that there were so many options with so many caveats <laughs> to yeah, consider. There are, well, there are quite a few. It's like a big Yeah. And like puzzle. I said, yeah, it just depends on the situation. And I met with a client I hadn't seen in 12 years a couple of weeks ago. She just wanted to look at everything to make sure that she had what she wanted. And we did discuss doing a pooled trust because right now she had a third-party special needs trust. She said, well, maybe down the road, I'll think about doing that. But right now we'll keep it the way it is. And it's the same with anything else. You want to look at your estate plan every five years or something happens, then you want to make sure that you have all your bases covered. And believe it or not, laws do change. My client who came to see me, I hadn't seen her in 12 years. Well, what happened in the last 12 years? We have ABLE accounts now. Who knows down the road? What happens if you have a trustee and that trustee passes away or becomes disabled themselves for some reason? The same with executors and agents on powers of attorney and medical directors. You always want to make sure all your players on those documents are still in play because if they're not, then those things need to be updated. So in addition to figuring out what the best scenario would be in different families situations from the beginning, you also offer the services of, let's say, we had done a plan four years ago, laws have changed, family dynamics have changed. Are you available to just even review what people have done and make recommendations for tweaks? Absolutely. Yes. And I do want to make a mention that October is Special Needs Law Month. National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys has deemed it so. We just want to highlight special needs in October and the laws that surround special needs. A lot of people don't think elder law attorneys do special needs law. Well, we do. It's just part of the umbrella of elder law. And it's a very important part. To me, it's your really your job is protecting the vulnerable. Exactly. And vulnerable people can be 18, they can be 70, they can be 80, they can be 90 or 100. It can span all uh, generations. So if one of our listeners or someone that they know has a disabled child or somebody in the family and they want to speak to you about setting up some of these provisions or, again, looking at something that they may have set up that a little time has passed on, what is the best way to reach out to you, Elizabeth? They can certainly uh, give me a call. My phone number is 540 541-1181, or they could shoot me an email at elizabeth at themcmasterlawfirm.com. And I recommend that anybody interested in any of the topics we speak about, go to my website, which is themasterlawfirm.com to see what services we offer. I kind of just pictured you in a superhero cape. I mean, seriously. Thank you. Thank you for taking taking care of our vulnerable. We appreciate you, Elizabeth. And thanks for being on uh, River City Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jess. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to River City Podcast. If you're interested in setting up a podcast for your business, go to rivercityconsulting.com.